There are two things from last week in chapter 12 that seem to lie behind uh, what we're going to do today in chapter 13. The first is that uh, we learnt in chapter 12:36 that Jesus has now withdrawn himself from public. We read that ominous line uh, last week from 12:36, "Believe in me, believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light." When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Jesus has done all of the persuading he felt he could do, and now he withdraws the light from the Jerusalem authorities and focuses now exclusively on his disciples in complete privacy. Uh, The next five chapters, 13 through to 17, is simply Jesus speaking for five whole chapters to his closest disciples on the final night. So in a sense, the stuff that we begin to tackle tonight and from 13 through to 17 is the deep stuff intended for those who really want to take him seriously. And it is remarkable, I think, what the first lesson is. He washes their feet. And that's actually the second thing from chapter 12 that lies behind chapter 13. Do you remember back in 12.3, Mary of Bethany washed Jesus' feet with a $60,000 bottle of perfume. She was an elite member of Judean society, but she acted like a household servant, honoring a guest with this extravagant act of devotion, uh, the most extravagant act of devotion in the whole gospel. But now, in chapter 13, it's Jesus who takes off his robe, wraps a towel around his waist, and without gimmick or guile, one by one, washes his disciples' feet. However extravagant or controversial Mary's foot washing was, it pales compared to God in the flesh on his knees, acting like a household servant, washing his disciples' feet. Pretend you've never heard this story before and let's listen to the first part. It was just before the Passover festival and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realise now what I am doing, but later 
you will understand. No, said Peter, you, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Thanks, James. Again, uh, just like last week, we notice the opening reference to the Passover. Did you see that? Uh, remember back in chapter 12, verse 1, it said it was six days before the Passover. And now in 13.1, it says it was just before the Passover. The significance of this is that Jesus has long said his ministry would climax at the Passover when he offered up his flesh and blood like the Passover lamb that was sacrificed in the temple and then eaten. Here we are on the eve of the Passover. And so we read with quite an ominous tone those next lines, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Uh, the Greek text says, telos, which we might translate to the max. Telos means the climax or the completion or the culmination. He loved them to the max, to the completion. What follows then is a perfect sign of his love. But before we get the details of this uh, sign of love, we're told that there is a traitor in the midst, verse 2. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. That's weird language for us. The devil didn't make him do it. We know that Judas has been distancing himself from Jesus and from the other disciples for a little while now. And we also know from a little passing comment of John that Judas has been helping himself to the money bag. Right? So this is a heart a long way from uh, the aims of Jesus. And what the Greek text literally says is the devil threw into his heart this thought of betrayal. Interesting image, isn't it? Lobbing a thought into his heart. He was already thinking, how do I get out of this Jesus thing? And this thought enters his mind, I'll betray him. Now whatever that experience was like, the devil prompting him, I'm not sure, but for me the most striking thing about this is that Jesus still goes on to wash his feet too. Just think about that. Jesus knows Judas will betray him in a matter of hours. He knows Peter, the leader, will deny him three times. And he knows that the disciples will flee when he's arrested. And still, he gets on his knees and he washes their feet. Uh, John's Gospel doesn't have the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, with that beautiful line, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. But even though we don't have that line, which is in Matthew and Luke, we have the act here of love toward those 
who don't love him quite as they should, and in one case, hate him. And then there's one more thing John wants to tell us before we read the foot washing. It's, it's like a little drum roll, these first few verses. It's such a big deal. He wants to pile up the things we're meant to hold in mind. It's Passover, uh, there's a traitor, and then we're meant to remember Christ's absolute authority. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. Now stop. Imagine you've never heard this story before. Try and forget anything you ever know about it. And you heard God the Father has given God the Son all authority in heaven and on earth. And so Jesus, knowing this, stood up and what? You'd expect, you know, gave them a battle plan or something or did some sign of supremacy. All authority is his, so he got up and washed their feet. Performing the task of a servant, verse 4, he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I imagined stunned silence to begin with from the disciples. I mean, they had learned to just roll with Jesus, okay? A few years with Jesus, you just learned to sort of go with the flow. You don't, know what's, you don't know what's coming next. But this, I'm sure, pushes the boundaries. You're washing our feet like a servant? And naturally, who is it who speaks up? Peter! Of course it is, verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, so in other words, he's done a few disciples. He comes to Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Now, just parenthetically, it is remarkable to me that across the diversity of the four Gospels, the same basic personality profile for Peter shines through. He always comes through, not just as the leader, I guess that's just a, you know, a management fact that's there. He always comes through as the boundless enthusiast who's always putting his foot in his mouth, doesn't he? If you, if you know your Gospels, that's exactly the profile. And, and actually, in one of the letters of Paul, you get the same hint. These are diverse sources. And I just want to say, only genuine historical reporting could possibly maintain a stable psychological profile across multiple diverse sources like this. That's just for free tonight. The real point is that Peter says what everyone's thinking. Yeah? No way, Lord. You're king. We're servants. We wash your feet. Remember Mary? You, you don't wash our feet. In fact, the original Greek is wildly adamant. And I don't know why the NIV hasn't really gone for it here. It, it literally says, not ever shall you wash my feet, not into eternity. Not into eternity. We might say uh, never in a million years or something exaggerated like that. 
Now, spare a thought for Peter, will you? Uh, Because the idea of servant leadership, all the rage now, hadn't been invented when this was going on. I mean, there was a famous 1970 management essay called Servant Leadership, and it's all the rage now, and now there's a centre for servant leadership. But Peter is in the middle of the invention, right here. Westerners forget that what we call humility was not always a virtue. Peter's culture prized honour and power, but especially honour, above pretty much anything else. Now, Jesus had moderated that by teaching them about love and compassion and so on, but the foot washing is going too far because the foot washing is a complete reversal of the honour-shame paradigm of ancient Mediterranean societies. According to the sort of cultural norms of Mediterranean society, what Jesus is doing here is basically the most honourable man shaming himself. And there is no precedent for that. You don't have to just take my word for it. Humility in Greek and Roman ethics would be a degrading thing to put yourself down to a level that you were not born to or that your standing in life did not require you to be in was disgraceful and debasing. In today's world, we value someone who has humility. We don't like arrogance. In the ancient world, that was not the case. Our word humiliation is how they would have heard back then the word humility. Humility may be the singular greatest offense to the moral uh, sensibility of the ancient world and to humans in general, and the greatest revolution uh, in, in our understanding of the moral good as a, as a social and personal practice. By the way, uh, this famous painting by Ford Maddox Brown was considered, when it was painted, too undignified to show in public. So it wasn't. He had to go and repair it and make Jesus look a little more holy before they would show it. It's kind of missing the point, isn't it? It's it's meant to look lowly and visceral and dirty. Don't you just love Peter's expression? I'll let you do it just because you said so. So we can understand Peter's shock at the humility, what he saw as humiliation, of the most majestic person he'd ever known. But Jesus makes clear you can't actually belong to him unless you let him humble himself before you. Verse 8, second part. Jesus answered Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. I mean, this is more Peter that we know and love, right? One minute it's never in a million years, and now it's wash everything. (laughs) But washing feet alone is enough to convey Jesus' point. This is a tangible picture of his sacrifice on the cross. That's what this is. 
It is preparing them for the ultimate humiliation. They think this is humiliation. Wait a few hours. This cross is the ultimate act of love, the ultimate act of humility, the ultimate means of making us clean. And this foot washing is a picture and a pointer to that. And that's why in verse 7, Jesus says, you don't realize now what I am doing, but you will later understand. He means after the Passover. When you look back and you see the ultimate humiliation, the ultimate way I cleansed you from your sins, then you will understand this act. That's what he's saying. So all of this lays a tremendous emphasis on those words in the second part of verse 8 where Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Can you just pause and soak that up? Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless we accept Christ's washing through his sacrificial death on our behalf, bearing into himself our sin and judgment, unless we accept that, We have no part of the forgiveness that he offers the world because there's no other way. We can't cleanse ourselves through a moral program, through a religious program, through hanging out in church. We've got to allow the confronting shock of letting Jesus serve us and do it all for us. Cleansing is a pure gift. And only when we get this will we get the next bit of the reading. Yes, we are meant to follow Christ's example. But it's very clear that that is only a joyful response to knowing that Christ has already served you, already cleansed you. And only when you know that will you truly follow his example. So continuing from verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thanks. Last week, um, I made the point that devotion to Christ is even more important than serving the poor. Do you remember Judas uh, last week in chapter 12 complained when Mary of Bethany wasted the perfume on Jesus' feet and he said this should have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. And Jesus replied in verse 7 of chapter 12, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you. You will not always have me. It's confronting stuff. And I mentioned uh, last week the danger that I have seen played out 
in individual Christian lives and in organizations that start out Christian. It's where the social cause of Jesus, which Jesus promoted, becomes more important than Jesus himself. And so over the years, all that's left is the cause and not devotion to Jesus. But I also hinted last week at a point I, I didn't really want to make, but I do this week. That greater devotion to Jesus will lead to greater devotion to others. If you are devoted to this Savior who gave himself for others, you have the ultimate rationale for serving others. The more you love the Savior who served, you will serve. And that's the point in verse 14 when Jesus gets very practical. Verse 14, he says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So the foot washing isn't only a sign of Christ's love, which it is, it's also a simple example for us to follow. I don't mean a literal example. The early church never interpreted this as a literal thing. We don't have a foot washing ceremony like we have communion, right? They knew that the point of this was we're to be servants. We're to be servants. And the logic of verse 16 is pretty confronting when you think about it. Basically, Jesus is saying not to serve others is to imagine that we are superior to our teacher and Lord. Do you see that logic? Not to serve others is to imagine we're superior to him. Because he served. And if you think some menial task is beneath you, you are basically saying, Jesus is beneath me. But it's more than a logical duty. It's also a blessing, my final point. Verse 17 finishes by saying, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And I want to repeat something I've said quite a few times from this happy place we call the pulpit. And I want to say it because it captures a lot of what I have been trying to teach over these nine years or more about Christian obedience. The idea of blessing in the Bible is not a simple reward system where if you obey certain arbitrary rules, in this case, serving others, God will pay you back, right? So it's a contract. You do X, God will give you Y, that's blessing. Friends, that is a million miles from what the Bible teaches. Actually, to obey God is to participate in God's own wisdom or genius built into the fabric of creation and expressed in his instructions for life. You are blessed when you obey God because you are doing what you were made to do as a creature. Obeying God is your own fulfillment, not just an arbitrary 
obligation. Do you remember a few years ago, I asked you to imagine the mighty Leotorp cabinet system from Ikea? Okay, I can see a few of you remember this. It's apparently one of the most complex products in the Ikea catalogue. Now, the genius of Ikea is built into the product. And it's expressed in the instructions that come with the product. And in this case, it's a long instruction manual, right? So, so the, the brilliance of Ikea is in the product and the instructions. Now, you can decide to improvise if you like. You can decide, as you know, some people are famous for doing. And this morning, I saw some mainly women go <clears throat> like this to their husbands. You can decide, you know, I'm going to skip stages, uh, steps 10 to 12, you know. I don't need them. And the screw at uh, step 50, that looks redundant to me. Sure, you can express your individuality all you like. The thing is, you're going to get to the end and you haven't done yourself any favours. Because there's only one way to enjoy the goal of the thing. And that is to follow the maker's instructions. To participate in the genius of the manufacturer. And of course you can see where I'm going. God's own mind, genius, character is built into the fabric of the universe. It's the work of his hand, so his wisdom is everywhere in the universe. And it's expressed in his instructions for life. There is a match between the way of God in the world and what is real in the world. And so we are blessed when we obey God. Not in the trivial sense of getting a prize for good behavior, but in the profound sense that we are participating in the genius of God. And so enjoying what it means to be a creature in his creation. As rarefied as all of that may sound, it's actually very simple. My point is, humble service isn't just a random ethical demand. It is what is most real in the universe. And to obey Jesus and serve others is actually to participate in his mind. He, the creator, entered the world in Jesus Christ. He humbled himself, washing his disciples' feet, but he humbled himself further, dying on a cross for us that we might be forgiven. That's the heartbeat of the universe. And so, humble service in our own lives is a life in touch with reality. It's an authentic life. It's the blessed life. The New Testament teaches that love, humility, service are the very mind of Christ. And this thought upended the world. To hear that a Messiah, a great king, uh, a, an important person was crucified, well, it would be nonsense to the Greek or the Roman ear. They couldn't make sense of it. In fact, Roman citizens were not crucified for that very reason. It was just so shameful. 
So for the gospel message to proclaim a crucified Lord, it, it upended the value system that the Romans held. From a prison in Rome 30 years after Jesus, the Apostle Paul, author of much of the New Testament, urges Christians to follow Jesus' example of humble self-sacrifice. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that's how the Apostle Paul put it, and it almost sounds like this passage. Though in very nature God... He humbled himself. That's the mind of Christ. But here is how the Apostle John himself, the author of the gospel, put it in a letter he wrote some years after the gospel to the Christians of what we call Turkey. And you can see the same thought. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here is the logic of the Christian life. It isn't that just God sends us out arbitrarily to love and be kind and do nice things. It's that what is most real in the universe is God's love prior to our love, entering the world in Christ, giving himself for us. It's his mind, his character that we participate in when we live this life of love. It's not an arbitrary rule. It's participating in God's mind. It's what creatures are made for. It's the blessed life. And so it's right that we move straight into communion, you know, because communion captures so much of the Christian life. I've said it, I don't know, a hundred times before. Communion is not something we do for God. It's a reminder of what he's done for us, yeah? Yeah? Think of the very nature of it. We're not bringing anything to him. It's not like an offering we've brought from home. It's not money. It's not a little food offering. It's bread and wine, tangible signs of his offering to us, of himself. Communion is the opposite of a religious ritual. And so I have said many times, the key to the Christian life is not try harder, you know, so the, the point of this sermon isn't, let's try harder to be humble servants. That's not the key. The key is, look to Christ and his humility, his love, and let that animate you. Friends, the key to Christian living isn't try harder. 
It is trust more. And so let's do that in communion. And on the inside back page of the news, that gorgeous prayer expressing this very thought. It's called the Prayer of Humble Access. And have a look at it. Reflect for a moment on what you think Christ is saying to you today. And then together we'll say it in a moment. together. We do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. In the Father's tender mercy, he gave his only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death on a cross for our redemption. And he made there a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. On the night he was betrayed, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Lord, as we feed on you, as it were, teach us to trust in this perfect, sufficient sacrifice for our sins that we might be people animated by your love, by your humility. Teach us to trust. Feed us, Lord, in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name.